Chapter 7 of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Arthur Piantadosi. Chapter 7 Oliver Continues Refractory. Noah Claypool ran along the streets at his swiftest pace and swells not once for breath until he reached the workhouse gate. Having rested here for a minute or two to collect a good spurst of sobs, an imposing show of tears and terror, he knocked loudly uh, the wicket, and presented such a rueful face to the aged pauper who opened it, that even he, who saw nothing but rueful faces about him at the best of times, started back in astonishment. "'Why, what's the matter with the boy?' said the old pauper. "'Mr. Bumble! Mr. Bumble!' cried the donor with well-affected dismay, and in tones so loud and aggravated that they not only caught the ear of Mr. Bumble himself, who happened to be hard by, and alarmed him so much that he rushed into the yard without his cocked hat, which is a very curious and remarkable circumstance that showed that even a beetle acted upon in a sudden and powerful impulse, maybe affected by a with momentary visitation of loss of self-possession and forgetfulness of personal dignity. Oh, Mr. Bumble, sir! said Oya. All of us, sir. All of us. What? What? interposed Mr. Bumble, with a gleam of pleasure in his metallic eyes. Not run away, eyes. Yes, and run away, as he is now. No, sir, not, not run away, but he's turned vicious. And I know. He tried to murder me, sir. He tried to murder Charlotte, and then Mrs. Oh, what dreadful pain it is. Such agony, please, sir. And here Noah writhed and twisted his body into an intensive variety of eel-like positions, thereby giving Mr. Bumble to understand that, from the violent and sanguine onset of Oliver Twist, he had sustained severe internal injury and damage, and which he ends at that moment suffering the acutest torture. Noah saw that the intelligence he communicated perfectly paralyzed Mr. Bumble. He imparted additional effort there, too, by bewailing his dreadful wounds ten times louder than before. And when he observed a gentleman in a white waistcoat crossing the yard, he was more tragic in his lamentations than ever. Rightly conceiving it highly expedient to attract their notice and rouse the indignation of the gentleman aforesaid. The gentleman's notice was very soon attracted, for he had not walked three paces when he turned angrily round and inquired what the young cur was howling for, and why Mr. Bumble did not favour him with something which would render the series of ocul explanations so detonated as an involuntary process. "'It's a poor boy from a three school, sir,' replied Mr. Bumble, "'who has been nearly murdered, all but murdered, sir, by young Twist.' "'By Jove!' explained the gentleman in a white waistcoat, sopping short. I knew it! I felt a strange presentiment from the very first that that audacious young savage would come to be hung. It's likewise attempted, sir, to murder the female servant, said Mr. Bumble, with a face of ashy paleness. And his missus, interposed Mr. Claypole. And his master, too, I think you said, nah, asked Mr. Bumble. No, he's out of it with a word at him, replied Noah. He said he wanted to. Ah, said he wanted to, did he, my boy? inquired the gentleman in the white waistcoat. Yes, sir, replied Noah. And please, sir, Mrs. want to know whether Bumble can spend any time because I'm up there directly and flog him as master's out. 
certainly, my boy, certainly, said the gentleman in the white waistcoat, smiling benignly and patting Orr's head, which was about three inches higher than his own. You're a good boy, a very good boy. Here's a penny for you. Bumble, just step up to Sourbridge with your cane and see what's best to be done. Don't spare him, Bumble. No, I will not, sir, replied the beetle. And the cocktat and cane having been, by this time, adjusted to their owner's satisfaction, Mr. Bumble and Noah Claypole betook themselves at all speed to the undertaker's shop. Here the position of affairs had not at all improved. Sarbury had not yet returned, and Oliver continued to kick, with undiminished vigour, at the cellar door. The accounts of his ferocity, as related by Mrs. Sarbury and Charlotte, were of so startling a nature that Mr. Dumble judged it prudently to parley before opening the door. With this view, he gave a kick at the outside by way of prelude, and then, applying his mouth to the keyhole, said in a deep, impressive tone, "Oliver, come, you take me out," replied Oliver from the inside. "Do you know this here voice, Oliver?" And Mr. Bumble, "Yes," replied Oliver. "'Aren't you afraid of it? Aren't you a-trembling when I speak, sir?' said Mr. Bumble. "'No,' replied Oliver, boldly. An answer so different from the one he had expected to elicit and was in the habit of receiving staggered Mr. Bumble not a little. He stepped back from the keyhole, drew himself up to his full height, and looked from one to another of the three bystanders in mute astonishment. "'Oh, you know, Mr. Bumble, he must be mad,' said Mr. Sarbury. A boy and have his senses good the danger so to speak to you. It's not madness, ma'am, replied Mr. Bumble after a few moments of deep meditation. It's meat. What? explained Mr. Sambury. Meat, madam, meat, replied Bumble with stern emphasis. You've overfed him, ma'am. You've raised an artificial soul and spirit in him, ma'am, by unbecoming a person of his condition. As the board, Mr. Sarbury, who are practical philosophers, will tell you what a pauper's to do with a soul or spirit. It's quite enough to let me have our blind bodies. If you had kept the boy on gruel, ma'am, this would never have happened. Dear, dear, ejaculated Miss Sarbury, piously raising her eyes to the kitchen ceiling. This comes of being liberal. Liberality of Mrs. Sarbury to Oliver consisted of a profuse bestowal upon him of all the dirty odds and ends which nobody else would eat. So there was a great deal of meekness and self-devotion in her voluntarily remaining under Mr. Bumble's heavy accusation, of which to do her justice she was wholly innocent in thought, word, or deed. Ah, said Mr. Bumble, when the lady brought her eyes bound to earth again. The only thing that can be done now that I know of is to leave him in the cellar for a day or so till he's a little starved down and then to take him out and keep him on gruel all through the apprenticeship. He comes of a bad family. Excitable natures, Mr. Sarbury. Both the nurse and the doctors said that the mother had uh, difficulty in pains that would have killed any well-disposed woman weeks before. At this point to Mr. Bumble's discourse, Oliver, just hearing enough to know that some allusion was being made to his mother, commenced kicking with a violence that rendered every other sound inaudible. Sarbury returned to this juncture. Oliver's offence having been explained to him, with such exaggerations as a lady thought best calculated to rouse his ire, 
he unlocked the cellar door in a twinkling and dragged his rebellious apprentice out by the collar oliver's clothes had been torn in the beating he had received his face was bruised and scratched his hair was scattered over his forehead the angle of frost had not appeared however and when he was pulled out of his prison he scowled boldly at noah and looked quite undismayed now you are a nice young fellow ain't you said Thalberry, giving oliver a shake and a box at the ear he called my mother names replied oliver well and what if you did you little ungrateful wretch said mr Sarbury. she goes heard what he said and worse she didn't said oliver she did said mrs Sarbury. it's a lie said oliver mrs Sarbury burst into a flood of tears this flood of tears left mrs Sarbury no alternative if he has hesitated for one instant to punish Oliver most severely, it must be quite clear to every experienced reader that he would have been, according to all precedents in disputes of matrimony established, a brute, an unnatural husband, an insulting creature, a base imitation of man, and various other agreeable characters too numerous for recital within the limits of this chapter. But to him justice he was, as far as his power went. It was not very extensive kindly disposed towards a boy perhaps because it was in his interest to be so perhaps because his wife disliked him the flood of tears however left him no resource so it we at once gave him a drubbing which satisfied even miss sowbury herself and rendered mr bumble's subsequent application of the parochial cane rather unnecessary for the rest of the day he was shut up in the back of the kitchen in company with a pump and a slice of bread and at night mr sowbury after making various remarks outside the door by no means complimentary to the memory of his mother looked into the room and amidst the jeers and pointing of noah and charlotte ordered him upstairs to his dismal bed it was not until he was left alone in the silence and stillness of the gloomy workshop of the undertaker that oliver gave way to the feelings which today's treatments must be supposed to have awakened in a mere child he had listened to their taunts with the look of contempt he had borne the lash without a cry for he felt that pride swelling in his heart which would have kept down a shriek to the last though they had roasted him alive but now when there were none to see or hear him he fell upon his knees on the floor and hiding his face in his hands wept such tears as god send for the credit of our nature few so young may ever have cause to pour out before him for a long time oliver remained motionless in this attitude a candle was burning low in the socket when he rose to his feet having gazed cautiously round him and listened intently he undid the fastening of the door and looked abroad it was a cold dark night the stars seemed to the boy's eyes farther in earth than he had ever seen them before there was no wind and the sombre shadows thrown by the trees upon the ground looked spiritual and death-like from being so still he softly reclosed the door having availed himself of the expiring light of the candle to tie up a handkerchief the few articles of rearing apparel he had set himself down on the, on the bench to wait for morning but the first ray of the light that struggled through the crevices in the shutters oliver arose and then again unbarred the door one timid look around one moment's pause of hesitation he closed it behind him and was out in the open street he looked to the right and to the left uncertain whether to fly he remembered to have seen the wagons as they went out 
toiling up the hill, he took the same route and arrived at a footpath across the fields, which he knew after some distance led out again into the road, struck into it and walked quickly on. Along the same footpath Oliver Rell remembered he had trotted beside Mr. Bumble when he first carried him to the workhouse and the farm. His way lay directly in front of the cottage. His heart beat quickly when he bethought himself of this, and he half resolved to turn back. He had come a long way, though, and he should lose a great deal of time in doing so. Besides, it was so early that there was little, little fear of its being seen, so he walked on. He reached the house. There was no appearance of its inmates stirring at that early hour. Oliver stopped and peered into the garden. A child was weeding one of the little beds. As he stopped, he raised his pale face and disclosed the features of one of his former companions. Oliver felt glad to see him before he went, for though younger than himself, he had been his little friend and playmate. They had been beaten and starved and shut up together many and many a time. Hush, Dick said Oliver, as the boy ran to the gate and thrust his tight arm between the onions to greet him. Is anyone up? Nobody but me, replied the child. You mustn't say you saw me, Dick, said Oliver. I'm running away. They beat in ill use, me, Dick. Now I'm going to seek my fortune somewhere on way off. I don't know where. How pale you are. I hear the doctor tell them I was dying implied the child with a faint smile. I'm very glad to see you, dear. But don't stop. Don't stop. Yes, yes, I will, to say goodbye to you, replied Oliver. I shall see you again, Dick. I know I shall. You will be well and happy. I hope so, replied the child. After I am dead, but not before. I know doctor must be right, Oliver. I dream so much of heaven and angels and kind faces that I never see when I am awake. Kiss me, said the child, climbing up the low gate and flinging his little arms round Arthur. Goodbye, dear. God bless you. This blessing was from a young child's lips, but was the first that Oliver had ever heard invoked upon his head. And through the struggles and sufferings and troubles and changes of his afterlife, he never once forgot it. End of chapter 7 of Oliver Twist.